Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is someone who's quoted as having said, I often say I'm not trying to fix all of healthcare. That's for everyone else. I'm much more humble, modest, and narrow. I'm just trying to fix all of clinical research. An extraordinary innovator, an extraordinary entrepreneur, my guest on the podcast today is Craig Lipset. You're very welcome to the show, Craig. I'm so pleased to be speaking with you today, and particularly in the light of what I read about you in an article, which I'm now going to quote. And the article starts, in 2006, Craig Lipset's career was flourishing. He was closing in on two decades in drug development and was heading up clinical innovation for Pfizer. He celebrated the birth of his second child. Then he started to cough. Now that doesn't usually end well, but you tell the story. What happened next? Then he started to cough. You're right. That's, that is not a lead-in for, uh, for a happy ending story, isn't it? Yeah, it was right around that time that something wasn't right. And I remember distinctly, I, I joined prior to Pfizer, a small venture-backed biotech company, and we had done an event up in Boston called the Chase Corporate Challenge. It was kind of a fun run, a nice fundraiser. And I could barely cross the finish line. I don't know why. I was walking and could barely get across the finish line. I hadn't even noticed how I wasn't walking upstairs at the office anymore, but was falling back to elevators. And so when that cough came on and it didn't go away and it was very productive and, and for a long period, I, I went and, and saw my doctor and we got a chest x-ray. So it was a Friday afternoon when I got the chest x-ray and my doctor just, he happened to be an Orthodox Jew. And the reason that this, that point is relevant is he called me on a Friday night and said we needed to talk about the x-ray. And I thought to myself, this can't be good if, if he's giving up on his celebration of a religious holiday to call me about the x-ray. Well, at the time, it could have been a number of things. And after weeks and weeks of different testing, and patients out there know this kind of story, right? You go for test after test to try to figure out what's going on. Imaging studies, biopsies, a lung biopsy. For me, this came back as pulmonary sarcoidosis, something I'd never heard of. I was a drug developer. I'd worked in industry for 20 years. I worked at the largest drug company in the world. Honestly, I thought that a study protocol for just about every disease imaginable had crossed my desk over these 20-something years. And yet, had never even heard of pulmonary sarcoidosis. This rare immune-mediated inflammatory condition can affect a number of different systems. For me, it was affecting the lungs. That's its primary landing place for many people. And the irony, I thought to myself, I'm in drug development and I'm winding up being told I have this condition that I've never heard of. And when you look it up, there are no approved medicines for this. And so it, it definitely... Uh, had me rethinking a lot of my perspective on how I was spending my time at work and also reallocating a lot of my time to make space to start to address this new challenge. Well, first of all, Craig, are you well now? Am I well now? Well, look, we are mid-pandemic. We're recording this and there's some daylight appearing with vaccines. I am at my new baseline. And I suppose as we all get older, we all have new baselines that we encounter. For me, I did lose a significant amount of pulmonary function to scarring in my lungs that 
that function is not coming back. So for me, that is my new baseline. But relative to that new baseline, and in context of the year of a pandemic that seemed to be targeting me, I felt like here's this virus that's looking for immune-compromised people, in particular, who already have some lost pulmonary function. So let's just say I have been particularly homebound and very happy to, uh, to sign up for vaccines. But otherwise, I'm fine. Thank you. Well, that's important. And you, you put that very well. You contextualize that very well. You're right. It is fantastic that we're seeing some light at the end of this very dark tunnel and that individuals like yourself are managing to get through it as best we can. Now, I wanted to really explore what it was like being in the situation where you've got a disease you don't know and you're in a system that is desperately trying to make you better. What was that like? What's that like for you as a patient? You know, things in this world are rarely evenly distributed. And when it came to access to good health resources, I knew that I was favored in that I'd worked in healthcare for so long. I'm married to a physician. I am surrounded by healthcare professionals every day. And yet, even for me, what are the treatment options that I should be pursuing? Who are the providers who actually know this space? What research is taking place? Even for me, a person who felt coming into this that I'm pretty well-educated around this. I was trained as an epidemiologist, worked in research, had access to great healthcare resources. And yet, for me, the navigation was just remarkable. But I'll tell you this along the way. I also had this profound appreciation for my health data. Like so many others out there, especially um, your listeners in places like the United States, which has a very fragmented healthcare system, I came to appreciate my role in this as the steward of my health data. If I was going to be seeing different providers in different hospitals and different health systems, knowing that electronic health records did not speak from one to the other, this was going to be my job to make sure that my data was always in my hands and that I would always be able to effectively communicate where I am relative to my data. You know, these were just some of the learnings for me, certainly around the challenge of navigation, even for somebody with good resources around uh, healthcare, and then certainly around the importance for me of investing a lot of energy to make sure I know where my data is, that I'm in control of it, and that I'm always, it's always in my hands so that I can share it with that next provider. Yes, you're right, in a very siloed system. And it's not just the United States, that's true also of Australia. And I imagine that that has profoundly changed your thinking around healthcare and where to from here at a global level. How did that influence your career? Well, you know, it was about 12 years ago that I created this new opportunity at Pfizer where I was the head of clinical innovation. And 12, 13, 14 years ago, people didn't really talk about patient engagement, patient centricity in clinical trials. But this experience affected me and I knew it had to affect others. I'm not that unique or special. And so I had to imagine others were going through a similar journey. In fact, it was around that time that I reconnected with a friend of mine, Dave DeBronckart, who went online by the name ePatient Dave. And Dave diagnosed me as an ePatient. That's when I realized that I was actually a part of a much larger community of patients who likewise were navigating this complex space and relying heavily on access to their own data to help guide them through that process. And so when I think about my work at the time, 
I really found strategies to bring this in. And so it was around that time that two particular areas of work that I was pioneering within Pfizer, one was around our ability to make sure that our research participants could have access to their own health data from the studies in which they participated. Knowing how important that data access was to me and my care, it was an awakening for me to see how patients in our research studies do not have access to the data from the study in which they participated. Now, sometimes during the study, they have to be blinded, and I understand that. But certainly by study's end, that should no longer be the case, and an individual's data should flow with them. It was also around that time that I started to look at strategies to make research participation easier and started to introduce a new model. Um, This was around 12 years ago for being able to run studies where patients did not have to travel a great distance to participate at elite research centers. And we call these remote trials or now decentralized trials, this model where patients could participate from home. Uh, in a clinical trial for a new medicine. And certainly that was meaningful to me, seeing so many other patients that had to travel a great distance to elite centers just to get care, just for access to research. So looking back, or maybe looking forward to the next five years, somebody in your situation making a diagnosis or being handed a diagnosis of some condition for which there is a trial medication somewhere, How will it look for them? How will it be different from them from how it has been for you? Well, step one, over the the coming years, and this is a problem we have not widely solved, but one of the changes we have to drive is that patients are able to learn about research participation from the physicians that they know and trust. Uh, In today's world, there's too much dependence on patients needing to go online and search for themselves. They trust their doctors and many health systems Patients have chosen to see that particular physician. And yet in today's world, to learn about a research study requires serendipity. You have to have happened to have gone to the physician who happens to be an investigator in the research study that happens to be the right one for you, which is a crazy set of coincidences that need to happen for you to learn about that kind of a research opportunity. And so looking ahead, whether it's through more immersive collaborations with large health systems or other strategies to stimulate referrals? How do we help treating physicians to have conversations with patients about research studies that are right for them? The next step will be around where participation is. And we're seeing now post-COVID, one of these silver linings in an otherwise miserable year has been this shift in location for participation. So many research sponsors felt It would be impossible for them to implement changes to allow patients to participate away from a big academic research site. And yet during COVID lockdowns, they had to do exactly that. And now that they've done it, they know they can do it. And there's really no going back. Now you're seeing so many researchers committing that we do need to include this type of optionality for patients going forward, sparing the burden wherever possible of travel. I think one of the last changes that I'm excited about that sort of links to what we were just talking about, about patients in control of their health data, researchers are voracious for data. And in more and more health systems around the world, patients have unique, unprecedented access to their own personal health data from so many different sources. In the past, we had to rely on 
patients being interviewed by study coordinators to extract data and fill out case report forms. But now we're getting to a place where patients have access on their mobile phones to health data and will be able to share that data with researchers with full transparency and through their own hands. Now, many of my patient friends out there may think, well, that would be nice, but I can barely access my health data today. And that is a very real challenge. Having consistent access across all of your different doctors and health systems today is not what it needs to be. In the United States, though, it does feel like directionally things are pointing to get better. Most all of our doctors now are required to have patient portals for us, which are clunky, but a good first step. And we're now seeing new rules from places like the United States Department of Health and Human Services, the branch of the federal government responsible for healthcare and health policy, implementing new rules with things like APIs, these, this type of technical language that helps make sure that there's consistency in how we as patients will be able to connect with our data. Things are changing. Change is slow, but there are real changes that are happening. I love what you said earlier, which is that we rely too much on patients going online to discover what's out there. And I also love the idea that clinicians should have better intelligence about what is out there. After all, one in 10 patients have got a rare disease for which we don't currently have a treatment and for which the only treatment would be something that's in a clinical trial, which ultimately will discover the definitive treatment going forward. How do you think we can achieve that? How do you think we can connect this enormous army of clinicians with the innovators who are doing such wonderful things back at base? It's a great question. And there are really two different challenges that we need to address. One is around information, and the second is around incentives. So in terms of information, the first challenge for most providers, for most of our physicians is, I don't even know what studies are out there for which you may be available, uh, eligible. And I don't have the time in my few minutes of encounter with you to go digging to try to find out. Now, this is a place where health technology is starting to help, where tools that are layered on top of electronic health records that can look and see what studies are out there and help support matching and help trigger notifications to physicians to let them know that there is a study for which their patient may be eligible. And that then leads to the second challenge around incentives. Physicians are busy. They have very little time. And I mentioned things like a notification in an EHR. Well, they're already getting too many of those. The average physician is getting over 100 a day. The average physician is spending over an hour a day responding to notifications. And so the 101st notification coming in that day that's keeping them from getting to go home saying Craig is eligible for a trial is very likely to fall on not just deaf ears, but just exhausted ears. And so how do we create the right incentives and alignments in an ethical and compliant way so that it is a part of a patient, a physician's day and a part of their job for which they're being compensated? How can physicians be properly reimbursed? for their time spent reviewing research opportunities for which a patient may be eligible? And importantly, how do we make sure that in health systems like the United States, where uh, physicians are paid for seeing a sick person, that a physician isn't seeing a financial disincentive if they're sending their patient to someone else 
to be in a research study, knowing that they may not see that patient now for the next 6, 12, 18 months, and that actually means less revenue for their practice. And quite honestly, that's not right, right? How do we keep that provider financially whole so that it's actually not hurting their practice to send that patient to be in a research study? Now, some of the strategies starting to emerge include, well, I mentioned things like remote or decentralized trials. Well, what happens if maybe some of your study visits don't take place at that big elite hospital across the city, but maybe at your local doctor's office where they can be compensated for the physical exam and the blood draws? Or in some settings where your physician that you see is actually the part a part of a larger medical practice or a larger health system, well, in that case, maybe a referral into the trial doesn't have to be painful to them because maybe it can happen within that same health system. So there are some different strategies starting to emerge. It's early days, though. But if we can break this through, I think you've landed on a really important point we're discussing here. Then we can enable this future of enabling research as a care option for everybody, where it can just be discussed along with other treatment options for a patient. As you were talking about something which could be a game changer, one of my previous guests talks about the complete change in the way medicine will be delivered in years to come. And he said to me, the idea that you're going to see an expert who knows everything and you're just uh, the recipient of that information, you take a ticket and wait in line like everybody else. Those days are going. He says it's critically important what happens in medicine is a connection between the doctor and the patient. And there's no doubt. But in artificial intelligence and all things electronic are related are going to change the way the patient turns up to the office. Well, whilst the step you're talking about is the next, the step after that's going to be a very much more enabled patient. I think that this shift around patients being connected and empowered is really an important one. Patients today are more and more connected and empowered than ever before, both connected socially, whether to uh, social uh, networks and communities online, or to conventional brick-and-mortar advocacy, but also empowered and connected electronically with access to their own health data and the ability to continue to track and gather more data. I think the the pitfall we want to avoid is placing the burden entirely on the patient because patients already have a lot of burden on their shoulders and they don't necessarily need more. And so for this model to work, we really need to have the supporting tools, the algorithms, the machines that can help the patient along the way and try to strive towards this desired state where I, as a patient, have that access and control over my data, but where worrying about it is no longer my day job, where it can be the way I manage my car, that I'll get a a warning light when something is wrong or something needs to be looked at, and maybe the telematics in my car that are notifying others as well that something is starting to go wrong, that I, I need an oil change, and that the machine can know that get that scheduled and get me there. Um, And that when there's no warning light, I can have more confidence and freedom to go about my day. Um, And so I'm excited about that future where we are more empowered with access and control, but seeing it coupled with the right technology so that 
I am not burdened by it, but liberated by it and able to live my life. Yes, I guess. And and the other thing, of course, is that even your car is going to tell you if you're not well. Your cars, because, you know, as Christoph says in his talk, really, there are now sensors in the car that senses things. There are sensors all around us that tell us what's going on with our health and can connect us to sources of help, sources of advice and warning and all the rest of it. You know what that reminds me of? I went to the Consumer Electronics Show, and it must have been eight years ago, and there was an auto manufacturer there that came to a digital health event. And they showed what was, I think, supposed to be an inspired video about exactly that. But the video went something like this. The mother was driving in the front of the car, and she's looking in her rearview mirror, and she can see her child asleep in the car seat in the back. And the voiceover went something like this. Is her daughter asleep, or is she slipping into a diabetic coma? And I thought, well, that is just a horrible commercial. But point well taken, right? Having that type of sensor technology and giving me the ability to have more confidence both about myself and my loved ones in the car is absolutely a great, a great vision. But I'll throw this out to you as well. Technology is an important piece of this, but so is our culture. And we're seeing this shift now in research away from words like subject and over to words like participant. And to me, words matter. A subject to me is the bowl of fruit that a class has gathered around painting. And they're extracting data from that bowl and transferring it onto a canvas. Or a subject is that person who's bowing before the king, before the hierarchy, before the royalty. And neither of those are the image of what we would want a research participant to feel. And instead, by thinking about people as participants in research, I believe it makes it clear that this is a two-way value proposition, that we're asking something of you to share your data, to share your time, to benefit the research environment, but you're participating in this, and you should get learnings out of this as well, and you should expect that. And so it is interesting, as you're talking about the changing in technology, what's the associated changing changes in culture and even in our language? Craig, where are we now? What's the current state of play with regard to clinical trials and that? We've talked about the world as it could be. What is the reality today? I think there are some areas where we're seeing some really great signs, but in very few areas are we fully baked and fully mature. I think that when we, when we look at how studies are being designed today, more and more research sponsors are expecting that their teams are including patients in how they're designing and planning their studies. More and more pharmaceutical companies are consistently engaging with patients for input into that design. But while it's consistent, it's not consistent in how. Some are running off to communities online, some in advocacy groups, some are gathering patients off the street. We're still a little bit wild west in terms of this process. And as a result, are we really getting the diversity of patient perspectives, diverse in geography, in age, gender, race, ethnicity, that we actually want to see enrolled in our trials? But there's at least some great direction there. On the other hand, as we look at some of the adoption of more thoughtful, practical digital tools in our studies, well, we're also still in some early stages. Right now, many of our endpoints for research are old. They're stale. They're out of date, and they don't necessarily align to what's important to patients. And we have this great opportunity right now 
to use different digital technologies to start to measure things that are closer to the patient and ideally ones that matter more to the patient. And so we're starting to see more investment in patient-focused drug development, which in the eyes of the FDA really points to measuring things that matter to patients. And we're seeing companies start to put a fresh focus on using digital tools to make those measurements happen. One great example to me, and one that many researchers realized the pain around last year, is something called the six-minute walk test. And for some people out in your audience, they may have They may live this six-minute walk test. It's something that researchers look at in anything from heart failure studies to movement disorders and a range of others. Basically, we put a few cones in the hallway at the research clinic a couple of meters apart, and we have you walk for six minutes, and we watch you walk, and we count how many laps you do, and we write it all down. And for most patients, they probably walked an hour to get to that clinic appointment with a smartphone in their pocket and a, maybe some a smartwatch on their wrist, and then they walked an hour home. And so in other words, all the information you wanted about how that patient did while walking a certain distance, you could have gotten many times over if we invested in the right new tools to capture that in ways that would be much easier for the patient. You know, during the pandemic, researchers felt that pain. If their endpoint was a six-minute walk test, and people were locked down, and clinics were closed. However, how in the world were we going to measure these people walking about for six minutes? And so now people are starting to see that light and realize that if they want to have continuity and reduce the risk in their studies, they have to modernize and update these measurements. And when they do that, it's a great opportunity to talk to patients and make sure we're measuring the things that matter to them. That's a wonderful summary. And I'm going back to the start of our conversation where it said, then he started to cough. What happens next? If you were to look back 10 years from now, where would you like to see your contribution? I think if um, things here are working, I think that ideally, this wouldn't have been just up to me to see that my cough was persistent and ongoing. We have enough ambient listening devices around us every day from my Alexa to my smartphone with a microphone to have been able to tip me off that, Craig, you're not walking the way you used to walk. You're not walking the distance, the duration. You're not walking up the stairs like you used to or in in capturing that through accelerometers on my phone with the microphones, hearing the coughing that I had and being able to understand that there was an issue there where when I went to those first few doctors to be able to use the diversity of data that I was generating, but also learning from all of the other patients before me to help guide and inform what it is that it looks like I have right now. And then ultimately, as we're starting to think about the treatment pathways for me, again, not just to use um, treatment guidelines, which mostly didn't exist for this indication, but how do we learn from the data of so many other patients? as well as make sure that I was aware of research opportunities, whether, whether it was my doctor who was the investigator or a doctor across town or a doctor anywhere else in the country that maybe I would be able to participate in that study from home. And so there are things that I'm excited to see would and could be different for me, for my future me, or if I had that, that time machine to go to be able to go back. 
Craig Lipset, you're making an enormous difference. The world that you describe is a world that we all aspire to. We wish you all the very best. And I hope that you will return uh, maybe in a year's time to tell us how it unfolded in this year. Thank you so much for having me, for sharing stories with your audience, and for keeping us all connected during this time. Thank you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.